Since 1945, fascists and fascism has had a bad name. Bad PR, if you will. And for good reason. They were, after all, on the losing side in the Second World War. Plus, they had a lot of otherwise blood on their hands, soaking in blood. In modern society, anyone who is anyone that isn't part of a mainstream liberal view is essentially termed or labeled either a fascist or a communist. Some form of extremist anyway. The words fascist and Nazi often get used interchangeably and in recent-ish times have been leveled as people as far-flung as Russian President Vladimir Putin, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, US President Donald Trump, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and even Chinese leader Xi Jinping. The rather odd case of Zelensky and Putin is interesting because they each call one another fascists and Nazis, while in the US the term is used so widespread that the entirety of the 80-odd million voters of Donald Trump are termed fascists and or Nazis. This is a very easy slur to be used very commonly, and the meaning of the term simply goes and gets diluted. In this episode, I want to figure out what fascism is, what it is not, how it started, what's happened to it since, and what's going on exactly. Is it an ideology? Now, the term Fascimo is derived from fascio, meaning a bundle of sticks. This was a name given to political organizations in Italy known as the fasci, or groups similar to guilds or syndicates like that. These fascists then came to be associated with the ancient Roman term fasces or fascio. You know, those bundle of rods I mentioned earlier? Now, basically, this is an ancient Roman symbol of the authority of the civic magistrate. The origins of fascism can, in my view, be traced to a few things. One, and primarily the main reason, as a reaction to the Communist Manifesto and the Russian Revolution of 1917. And two, the economic hardships after the First World War. And three, at least this is what I think, Western Christianity. In my view, fascism as a following, say like communism, to some degree can only have originated in the West, and it could only have flourished in European societies. It needed the hard reality of economic disaster following a horrific and terrible pandemic, an alternative to communism, because, well, humans like options. And finally, that magic ingredient, Western Latin Christianity. You get economic hardships in Sri Lanka, Bengal, Tanzania, or Korea. You get wars in Iraq, Burma, or Ghana. You also get Christianity in Kerala, Mexico, and Syria. But fascism originated in Italy. It caught on like wildfire across Europe, and the ideology was ultimately pitted against communism on one side, which also is a Western European invention and imperial liberal capitalism on the other, which also is a Western European invention. Now, before I go down the fascist rabbit hole, here's what happened in the 1930s and 1940s. Fascism cracked a deal first with the communists, then they separated from the communists. The imperial liberal capitalists then decided to partner with the communists to fight the fascists. 
the fascists were somewhat defeated, but not fully. Then the fascists blended into what became known after 1945 as the liberal world order. Now, I do not need to go down the rabbit hole too far, but at the outbreak of World War I, way back in August 1940s, the Italian political left became severely split over its position on the war. The Italian Socialist Party opposed the war, but a number of Italian revolutionary syndicates supported war against Germany and Austria-Hungary. Yes, Italy was on the western side. Now, this was on the grounds that their reactionary regimes had to be defeated to ensure the success of socialism. Angelo Olvetti formed a pro-interventionist fascio called the Revolutionary Fascio of International Action in October 1914. Benito Mussolini, yes, that Mussolini, upon being expelled from his position as chief editor of the PSI's newspaper, Avanti, for his anti-German stance, joined the interventionist cause in a separate fascio, yes, anti-German stance. The first meeting of the fascio of revolutionary action was held on the 24th of January 1915, when Mussolini declared that it was necessary for Europe to resolve its national problems, including national borders, specifically of Italy, even elsewhere, for the ideals of justice and liberty for which the oppressed peoples must acquire the right to belong to those national communities from which they descended. At this point, though, attempts to hold mass meetings were ineffective and the organization was regularly harassed by government authorities and socialists. Looking back from our future vantage point, this is nothing unusual. Most countries, empires, and kingdoms have always wanted to secure their borders and often that leads to conflict. Interestingly, at the same time, similar political ideas arose in Germany after the outbreak of the war. German sociologist Johann Plenge spoke of the rise of a national socialism in Germany within what he termed the ideas of 1914. That were a declaration of war against the ideas of 1789, that being the French Revolution, in case you don't know. According to him, the ideas of 1789, such as the rights of man, democracy, individualism, and liberalism, were being rejected in favors of the ideas of 1914, and that included German values of duty, discipline, law, and order. Again, let's look back from our wonderful futurist hindsight. Duty, discipline, law, and order were and are nothing new. There are pretty much de facto workings any functioning countries. But here's the twist. Because he also believed that racial solidarity would ultimately replace class division and that racial comrades would unite to create a socialist society in the struggle of Germany against capitalist Britain. He believed that the spirit of 1914 manifested itself in the concept of the People's League of National Socialism. National Socialism. National Socialism. This National Socialism was a form of state socialism that rejected the idea of boundless freedom and promoted an economy that would serve the whole of Germany under the leadership of the state. This National Socialism was opposed to capitalism because of the components that were against the national 
interest of Germany, but insisted that the National Socialism would ultimately, ultimately, ultimately strive for greater efficiency within the economy. Plenz advocated for an authoritarian, rational, ruling elite to develop National Socialism through a hierarchical, technocratic state. In this twist, we have a policy of racism as state policy. Even here, I might even argue, if I'm playing devil's advocate, that though strictly insane a policy, it is extremely normal in many societies and has been for centuries, aka racism. Racism and racist behavioral norms are ultimately part and parcel of human normal behavior, sad as they you may think. Now, you can check out episode 73 on racism, where I trace the history of racism since 300,000 BC. Yes, 300,000 BC. These early fascists, fascist thinkers were putting pen to paper. Fascists saw World War I as bringing revolutionary changes to the nature of war, society, and the state, as well as technology. And the advent, ultimately, this is the crucial part here, the advent of total war and mass mobilization ultimately broke down the distinction between civilian and combatant, as civilians had become a critical part in the economic production of the war effort. And thus arose a military citizenship in which all citizens were involved to the military in some way or another. This war, World War I, was ultimately a very Eurocentric conflict. Although theatres were worldwide, and that was only because European countries had empires worldwide. This resulted in the rise of a powerful state in Europe capable of mobilizing millions of people to serve on the front lines or provide economic production and logistics to support those on the front lines, in addition to having unprecedented government authority to intervene in the lives of its citizens. That was the first. World War I, this great war, did the one thing that had never happened previously in human history. A totalitarian state was tried, tested, and delivered. It happened in Europe, not in India, not China, not the USA, not Brazil, but in Europe. Now, it's not to say that fascism did not try to rise in the Americas. It did. After all, they are and were offshoots of Europe, i.e. the people of the Americas are offshoots of Europeans. And Western Christianity is embedded in the Americas. But it fizzled because, importantly, the right socioeconomic conditions were not there in the Americas for it to take hold like they were present in Europe. Fascists saw technological developments of weaponry and the state's total mobilization of its population in the war as symbolizing the beginning of a new era, fusing state power with mass politics, technology, and particularly the mobilizing myth that they contended had triumphed over the myth of progress and the era of liberalism. But the big, really big, 
ideologically critical development that was happening had happened in St. Petersburg in October 1970. That October's Bolshevik Revolution, led by Vladimir Lenin, seized power in Russia, considerably influencing the development of fascism as something against that revolution. In 1917, Mussolini, as leader of the fascists of revolutionary action, praised the October Revolution, but then became unimpressed with Lenin, regarding him as merely a new version of Tsar Nicholas II. After World War I, fascists commonly campaigned on anti-Marxist agendas. But what the 1917 revolutions, both of them, the February and October revolutions, did for the early European fascists is give them the playbook to obtain and retain power. It also gave them the blueprint to know what they're not, and they weren't communist. If you lived in a liberal country, then and now, you'd be forgiven for thinking there are similarities between fascists and communists, especially Bolsheviks, because technically speaking, they're both totalitarian and so on and so forth. But there are very, very important differences. You can learn more about communism in my episode 92, by the way. I call communism a religion. It has a founder and a holy book. But fascists don't have one of those or either of those. It is not a religion. Communism became largely a class struggle. The ability of the downtrodden to get one over the ruling elites. Fascism, however, became, in addition to everything else I mentioned, a racial struggle driven by nationalistic ideas rather than international ones on class as per communism. Fascists sought to accommodate Italian conservatives by making major alterations, and they are major alterations, to its political agenda. Get this. Abandoning populism, dropping republicanism, and also ditching anti-clericalism. Adopting policies ultimately in support of free enterprise and accepting the Catholic Church and the monarchy as institutions in Italy. Fascists did not see themselves as conservatives. They saw themselves as revolutionaries. Olivetti even said, fascism would like to be conservative, but it will be by being revolutionary. Beginning in 1922, fascist paramilitaries escalated the strategy from one of attacking socialist offices and other homes of socialist leaders to one of violent occupation of cities. The fascists met very little serious resistance from authorities and proceeded to take over several northern Italian cities. These fascists then attacked the headquarters of socialist and Catholic labor unions in many Italian cities and imposed forced Italianization upon the German-speaking populations of cities like Trent. After seizing these cities, the fascists made plans to take on the city of Rome. On the 24th of October 1922, the fascist party held its annual congress in Naples, where Mussolini ordered the blackshirts to take control of public buildings and trains and then to convert at three points around the city. The fascists managed to seize control of several post offices and trains in northern Italy, while the Italian government, led by left-wing coalition, 
was internally divided at the time and unable to respond to the fascist advances. King Victor Emmanuel III perceived the risk of bloodshed in Rome in response to attempts to disperse the fascists as being far too high. He decided to appoint Mussolini as Prime Minister of Italy, and Mussolini arrived in Rome on the 30th of October to accept the appointment. Fascist propaganda suggested that this event be known as the March on Rome and was a seizure of power because of the fascists' heroic exploits. The March on Rome brought fascism international attention. Only one interesting early admirer of the Italian fascists was Adolf Hitler, who less than a month after the march had begun to model himself and his National Socialist, aka Nazi party, on Mussolini and the fascists. The Nazis, led by Hitler and the German war hero, Enrich Ludendorff, attended a march on Berlin, modeled on the March of Rome, ultimately resulting in a failed beer hall push in Munich in November 1923. At this point, I need to remind you again of what was actually happening in Europe at the time. It's not just as simple as marching on Rome or Berlin. The conditions were unique and uniquely ripe for fascism to flourish. The greatest war ever, the loss of life, the economic conditions, the pandemic, everything, everything was a mess. The system was failing or had failed. And literally, yes, in literal terms, the people were hungry and dying. If your child was dying due to hunger or your mother could not be treated for simple illnesses, what would you do if your own economic situation was also hellish and could not help them? In any vacuum, something must exist. Check out my episode 83 on power. Anyway, any vacuum needs to be filled. If communism wasn't going to take off, then something else had to feed the poor and treat the sick. And that was the primary concern. Hunger and sickness. Most history books will tell you all about nationalism and greatness. That was the byproduct of the essential delivery of the very, very basic. And at this point, we must introduce the idea of why and what this made it so uniquely European and so uniquely Western Latin Christian. And that is the age-old, centuries-old hatred of the Jews, the Gypsies, the Slavs, a.k.a. the Russians, and even the Poles. This was something everyone else could agree on and sign up for. Russians were Slavs and indeed Orthodox, but they were communists now, so not only were they looked down on, but they were dangerous. And this view, by the way, persists today. Ditto for the Poles. Though to complicate matters, of course, the Poles and Russians hate each other, as they do today. Anyway, I digress. Gypsies and the Roma were also hated because they were nomadic peoples and they were not liked. And they're not liked even to this day in many places in Europe because land owning is not part of their culture. And of course, hatred of the Jews is an old Christian pastime. And I'm not joking. This idea of Judo-Christianity or so-called traditions that are rooted in Judo-Christian history is a recent thing. Anti-Semitism, 
was common as muck since, well, since Christianity took hold. Judean Christian alliance is very recent. So to hate on the Jews in 1922 or 1932 was just establishing what everyone already knew in Europe. And you'll want to check out my episode 60 on anti-Semitism for more info on that. Indeed, fascist propaganda at the time overtly blamed the problems of the long depression of the 1930s on scapegoats, judo-messianic Bolshevik conspiracies and left-wing internationalists, and the presence of immigrants was the driving force. But don't forget, the underlying factor was extreme economic hardship. The rise of the Nazi party in Germany resulted in the demise of the Weimar Republic and the creation of the fascist regimes, i.e. Nazi Germany under the leadership of Adolf Hitler. With the rise of Hitler and the Nazis to power in 1933, liberal democracy was dissolved in Germany and the Nazis mobilized the country for war with expansionist territorial aims against several other countries. In the 1930s, the Nazis implemented racial laws that deliberately discriminated against disenfranchised and persecuted Jews and other racial minorities. It was a state policy enforced not just by the state, but by civilians who basically ratted out their neighbors. Fascist movements grew in strength elsewhere in Europe, Hungary, Romania, Greece, Lithuania, Poland, including modern Ukraine and Yugoslavia, among other places such as the United Kingdom itself. And even, as I mentioned before, the Americas as well, although it fizzled out there. And just in case you do not know, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, both Mussolini and Hitler, pursued territorial expansionist and interventionist foreign policy agendas from the 1930s through the 1940s, climaxing in World War II. The defeat of these fascist states by the forces of communism from the East and liberal capitalist imperialists from the West ended World War II in Europe in 1945. Although suggested it's such in literature and is an ism, I do not think fascism is an ideology. It is not a philosophy and it is not a religion. In other words, it does not have an intellectual basis. This is strictly my view and a lot of people would disagree with it. I think fascism is also a uniquely European, Western European grassroots movement driven by extreme desperation and has a tie-on to Western Latin Christianity. Later historians turn this into an ideology. It's really a movement with massive racial undertones. For it to succeed, it needed its Eurocentric roots and its uniquely post-war dystopias. Could fascism tenants happen elsewhere? Not only is the answer to that question yes, but most of the tenants have been happening for much of human history. It's just never been overt state policy coupled with the technology and science to enable mass genocide. Would the Mauryan or Romans have been as brutal as, say, Nazi Germany if they had the trains, the printing press, the phones, the telegram, and the chemical weapons? I don't know. It's just speculation. They could. 
could fascism happen all over again? I think that's unlikely. History rarely, if ever, repeats. It also never rhymes. Our brains simply try to see patterns and then connect them. The Europe of the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s was a point in time helped by circumstance then. Some argue that Francisco Franco, the Spanish dictator who ran Spain, was a fascist. He even thought of himself as a fascist. I think he was an opportunistic authoritarian. He had frosty relations with the state of Israel. He cracked a couple of deals with expansionist Germany, but also Spain actively saved thousands of Jews escaped Portugal in the 1930s and 1940s. So it's obviously not so easy to pinpoint and nail these groups down. Since 1945, fascist movements and openly fascist political parties have been around and often around in Europe. Often, they are very diluted versions of the 1930s or fascists often in name only. I don't believe fascism can prop up in non-European countries. If they do, that would be in the Americas with their Western Latin Christian heritage. That's the only place maybe they could occur outside Europe. But in my view, fascism is for the history books. The word fascist, though, is used widely and often, and it's mostly used as an insult to almost anyone who a political or military opponent detests. I don't think there are true fascists even in Europe right now in November 2022. Could the economics create such a situation? Could the economies collapse and things sort of repeat? Yes, sure, but it will be something new. It won't be classical fascism of a hundred years ago. Frankly, calling everyone a fascist very much dilutes the actual movement, and it really diminishes the millions of deaths as a result of active glacial policies and war in the form of the Second World War. With that, I bid you all farewell for now. Thank you very much. Thank you.